Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. Officials here are conscious, wrote the New York Times on the 10th of October 1949, just one day before the first visit to Washington by an Indian leader. Officials here are conscious that Pandit Nehru's first visit may very well start a new chapter in the relations between the United States and Asia. They realize they will be meeting perhaps the most influential political figure in that vast and rapidly changing part of the world. Events are moving so fast, the story continues, in East and Southeast Asia that officials here feel the need to exchange views on these topics with someone who is of the East and still understands the West. Foreign policymakers can rarely be celebrated as prognosticators, but this prediction is spot on. India, with its 1.4 billion people, is growing into one of the most powerful economies on Earth and has remained unaligned, operating somewhere outside the East-West geopolitical matrix since the 1950s. But now, just days before sitting Prime Minister Narendra Modi arrives in Washington for an official state visit, the U.S. wants to know. Which direction is India really heading? Here to help answer that question is Richard Rossow. He is the chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., a former deputy director of the U.S.-India Business Council. And, best of all, he joins me next. Hi, Rick. Thanks for joining me. Oh, great to be here. Nice that India gets a little bit of attention once in a while. It takes a state visit sometimes. But uh, it's certainly happening, and uh, we're looking for a big week next week. Yeah, yeah, you, you beat me to it. So that's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, the White House next week is preparing to welcome Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi for a state visit. Only the second state visit, I might add, uh, during nearly 30 months of the Biden presidency. Uh, pop quiz here. Who was the first? Uh, was it South Korea? No, Emmanuel Macron. But oh, close, enough. Yeah. <laughs> close enough. Close <laughs> enough. But <laughs> first of all, Rick, what are these visits? I mean, what makes them more significant than the other sorts of trips foreign dignitaries might make to Washington? Well, you know, I mean, they they do tie in things. Um, they got a state dinner coming up. It's gonna he's gonna be here for multiple days. Um, but you know, honestly, at the end of the day, um, you know, you, you've seen uh, uh, heads of state visits that weren't technically called state visits or didn't have a state dinner, and they've been pretty successful too. So, uh, from somebody who's never been in government, uh, I don't see the difference quite as much. But people inside government get uh, geekily excited about this kind of stuff and the little nuance there. So, I think for for the general people, uh, not a big difference between a visit and a state visit. But uh, for insiders, uh, it seems to make all the difference in the world. So I'll let them go at that. I'd like to see what the dinner menu includes at a, an official state visit versus, you know, a working visit. But the last time that uh, Modi <laughs> was here for um, for a visit, um, it was actually uh, celebrating a religious holiday and was fasting. So they had him at a dinner and he wasn't eating. Whoops. And a uh, lot, lot of folks were calling me asking about dinner gate. Was this going to be a, a problem? Like, no, I think two adults can understand that one of them for religious reasons was choosing not to eat that night. Uh, it wasn't such a big deal, but uh, people were trying to drum that up. So always got to be something to make it more exciting than uh, whatever's supposed to be on the table officially. More for the rest of us. Uh, so, yeah. so Rick, let's start to unravel this riddle of what makes the timing so auspicious for, for such a grand diplomatic gesture or somewhat grand. Uh, and I want to start with your your principal area of expertise, the economy. What's happening in India's economy? How has it changed in recent years? Which sectors are growing? Well, you know, India's economy, uh, it still is largely agrarian. Uh, about half of India's workforce is still doing uh, really kind of basic agriculture that would be probably pretty recognizable to a 17th century American farmer in some ways. Uh, add that plus a cell phone and you probably have uh, what uh, farming looks like today, you know, versus what we had a couple hundred years ago in some ways. Um, 
But uh, you do you did have this explosive growth over the last 20 years of India's dynamic IT service industry. And that was triggered by a couple of things that just magically came together. India created these great tech institutions, partially with U.S. help back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, then you had a series of telecommunications reforms about 20 years ago that unlocked the private sector. And uh, lastly, Y2K, uh, something you know almost lost to antiquity now. But those of us that were uh, around back then, uh, nervous about getting on an airplane that night in case everything was going to crash and the world ends. But it was actually India's tech sector that helped to uh, go through computer code for companies and make sure you weren't going to have these idiosyncrasies when the clock changed that would bring down computer systems. So, you know, for the last 20 years, uh, really the, the story on U.S.-India commercial relations has been this dynamic growth of the IT service industry. And a lot of the companies that we use, first it was call centers, you know, and you'd call your IT help center and you'd get somebody in India and not every American got the accent, things like that, but it became recognizable. Uh, now it's into way advanced stuff. They're doing research and engineering and things like that. But uh, the one area that's been lacking for a long time is for India to build out a robust manufacturing sector. And the Modi government came to office nine years ago. Uh, at that time, manufacturing as a percent of GDP was about 12, 13%. That's about half the level about with the other countries that India considers its, its peers. So they began this drive to try to go up to 25% manufacturing by the year 2025. They're not quite there yet. Yeah, well, and the two big reasons for that, which every American would recognize too. Uh, they want to create jobs and they have a huge trade deficit. Uh, two, two drivers for U.S. trade policy, I would say, these days. But uh, as you kind of hinted, um, despite a lot of efforts from the national government, uh, they haven't had a lot of success by the World Bank. Um, you know, India's kind of hovering still at about the 12, 13, 14 percent range in manufacturing to GDP. Um, so uh, a lot of effort there, uh, not as much success uh, of late. Um, but, uh, you know, visits like this, trying to attract American companies, some of those CEO level engagements, uh, maybe they'll have to help trigger a little more investment in that space. What has Modi tried to do internally to make India's economy more efficient? Well, there, there's two uh, uh, two big areas. Well, maybe I'd say three big areas. Uh, foreign engagement. Um, th mm -hmm. That, you know, I mean, you think a lot of countries around the world, a lot of leaders would welcome big American investments. Um, but India's was, uh, India was very reluctant um, to, to have kind of a full-throated welcome for foreign companies investing in the country until Prime Minister Modi. And I think he realized that the Indian population was actually a lot more comfortable with foreign companies, foreign products, and foreign jobs than what previous leaders had felt. So you see India moving pretty fast to reduce foreign equity restrictions for companies to be able to make investments into India. So that's one bucket where they've been pretty successful. Uh, number two is on trade. And that's where actually we've seen India take a couple of steps backwards to try to give Indian industry a little bit more time to compete without international competition you saw India, after Modi took office, starting to increase customs duties. So it was more expensive to bring foreign goods into the, into the country. And that was, again, you know, trying to give domestic manufacturers a bit of an opportunity to try, to try to take off and get to grow. The third area was challenging state governments to do better. And, mm -hmm. and here's really kind of the magic sauce uh, that'll decide whether India succeeds or not succeeds. State governments don't get a lot of attention, but India's 28 states actually run the country. Uh, if you're talking to an investor and they need things to be able to manufacture in India, like electricity and water, clear regulations on how to set up land, all those things are controlled by state governments. So the Modi government, as a former state leader, has been trying to convince states to try to compete for investment. Um, so far, you know, I would say on the foreign investment thing, you have seen a pretty good uptick in foreign investment since it took office. On trade of late, they've actually moved away from protectionism. They're signing a few trade deals and incentivizing domestic companies. But uh, the, the idea about getting states to compete or cooperate to try to attract investment, 
uh, that's been a little bit uh, trickier. Uh, you've got state elections, you've got local political priorities. And uh, despite all these headwinds and, you know, uh, the China plus one strategy by companies, things like that, um, state governments, they're still rooted in local politics. And some of these global issues that might impact investors don't really resonate as much. So that's been the trickiest one, I'd say, for the Modi government to move the needle on. We've seen foreign firms move into the service and IT sector, like you, like you mentioned. And I already know the answer to this next question because I got the chance to ask you during your press call yesterday. But but is foreign investment arriving in the manufacturing sector? I mean, we've seen Apple and many of its suppliers move manufacturing to India in just the last few months. Are other firms doing the same? Uh, the data doesn't show that it's really taken place in any dramatic way. Uh, yeah, I mean, Apple and its suppliers going there, which is relatively high end, you know, is a signal that it's clearly better than what the perceptions are. But uh, if you look at India's foreign direct investment numbers, they come on on a monthly basis. And actually, India's seen about a 20% drop year on year in foreign direct investment. Uh, funnily, the, the middle of COVID, they had this spike. They were, they were hovering at about $45, $50 billion a year. Middle of COVID, they jumped up to $72 billion. And part of that was because uh, India's largest conglomerate, Reliance, has went big into the telecom space. Uh, they had the company called Reliance Geo that was really taking over a lot of the telecom space. And you had big block investments from U.S. tech firms that wanted to make sure they had close alliance with Reliance, with, with Reliance and their uh, and their, uh, their their telecom outfit called Reliance Geo. Um, so you had a, about fifteen billion dollars investments in one single company that helped to spike the number in the middle of COVID, uh, kind of warped things a little bit. Now it's settling back down in about the $50 billion range, and you don't see a dramatic increase in manufacturing investments with the exception of telecom. But there are a few sectors where India has been, over time, competitive in manufacturing. Uh, the two that you know are probably the most recognizable would be generic pharmaceuticals. Any American opens up the medicine cabinet, grabs generic pharma, and looks at the back. It'll probably say made in India if it says anything. They become really the factory for the world for generic pharma. And then autos and auto components. Uh, not everybody realizes through acquisition, but Tata, uh, the, the Indian company Tata actually owns uh, a Jaguar and Land Rover. Um, Indian uh, auto firms like Mahindra have been building in the United States and other places. But it's, it's been sparse. The manufacturing t- sectors where India has been globally competitive. So uh, I think they're hoping that you know, the signals from Apple and its suppliers is an indication that real tech manufacturing, the time is ripe. Uh, maybe because India is competitive, probably because... The other countries past China, like Vietnam and Malaysia, you know, they just got overloaded a little bit by all the foreign investor interest. So it looks like India might be kind of defaulting as the next best place. But let's check back in a year and see if those numbers ticked up. You got it. Uh, so even if India's economy is growing through going through some some growing pains, like you said, it has a, a, a ton of potential economic might, which gives it substantial geopolitical muscle, which it hasn't been particularly shy to flex. Uh, can you talk about where India has arrived on the question of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Yeah. Uh, you know, India during the Cold War period, or at least the, the latter portion of the Cold War period, when the United States was actively trying to build up stronger relations with China to peel them out of the Soviet orbit and building ties with Pakistan uh, because they were open and amenable to, to aiding us in the Cold War, particularly after the Russian invasion, uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, here was the United States building closer relations with India's two great rivals. India had fought multiple wars with Pakistan and had a significant border war with China in 1962. And suddenly the United States is building ties with the two great rivals. So, you know, the separation became a lot more stark uh, starting in the mid 60s um, when, when when the United States chose other partners in Asia, which were you know, in many ways adverse to building a closer relationship with India. 
So across multiple decades, when India needed advanced weapons technology for its own self-defense, the United States uh, wouldn't have those conversations. Uh, The Soviet Union and later Russia were willing to. Uh, They they never felt that India was off the playing field as a chip, as we're all trying to win uh, countries and friends during the Cold War. And and the Soviets didn't give up. Uh, And so uh, they became, you know, really the chief weapon supplier. So, you know, here we are today, uh, you know, many years later. And if you think of India's tank force, air power, the naval power, a lot of that is Russian made or made in India with Russian technology through through agreements. So India is in an actual uh, small level hot war with China right now. China has taken over territory. They've had multiple uh, uh, battles on the field, not with shots, but, you know, through um, uh, through uh, beating each other with clubs and things like that. Um, the idea that, you know, if India were to come out uh, more harshly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, India's big fear is, you know, they've got an escalating fight with China happening today. And if China, were, if Russia were suddenly embargo uh, defense equipment and supplies and India didn't get those supplies they needed to repair and, and get uh, equipment on the battlefield, uh, India would have substantial risk. And you can't rekit your entire military, especially this heavily weighted on Russian equipment, in one fell swoop. So you've got historical ties and you've actually got concrete uh, military reasons today where India wouldn't want to risk Russia cutting things off altogether. Um, And I think by and large, um, you know, I think there's some understanding in the United States as you get closer to the president that uh, especially now, you know, a year and a half later, we see uh, nominal support to Ukraine has been enough to stop Russia in its tracks and push back. Would India's voice on this have a meaningful impact on what Russia is is doing right now in the war? Probably not. So I think as well, long as not, India, if not its voice, at least uh, you know it, it's buying billions of dollars worth of Russian oil. Right? Yeah, yeah. But I think as long as uh, as long as India, uh, and we'll see this next week, I'm sure in the joint statement, and a lot of security related announcements. As long as they keep doing more with us, with an eye on China's rise and and our shared concerns about that. I think we'll keep giving India a bit of a pass on Russia, Ukraine for now. But yeah, that, that changes all the time as India continues to escalate energy buys, escalate um, uh, some of its own uh, purchases of uh, other items like fertilizers. Uh, that could change. India's original talking points was, you know, as, as India's foreign minister said, we buy less oil in a month than Europe buys in an afternoon. That was true early on. But, you know, over time, as India increases and Europe decreases, uh, you know, those talking points about Russia getting the economic lifeline from India, they might start to glare a little bit more. So I don't think that conversation is quite over yet. Yeah. You mentioned the historical component there that India uh, had its uh, national identity forged in the language of anti-imperialism. The Soviet Union somehow managed to frame itself as an anti-imperial power. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, the incentives that, that India has for sticking with Russia, the gas and guns, essentially. What, what if anything has India done to, to wean itself off Russian supplies of weapons and oil? Uh, so on, on the weapons thing, uh, two big things. Number one, they are diversifying where they're buying from. The United States was not a supplier to India up until about 20 years ago. And now we've got more than $20 billion of deals. So India's heavy lift aircraft are American made. Uh, their heavy lift helicopters, American made. Attack helicopters, American made. Naval tracking and attacking submarines are American made. Uh, light howitzers, American-made. So if you think about some of the vital kit, and, and a lot of this you can imagine, when we talk about light howitzers and attack helicopters and things, very useful in mountainous warfare, and that's where the pain point is with uh, with China, or chi- uh, submarine tracking. They're not looking for Russian submarines in the Indian Ocean. They're trying to keep an eye on what China's doing. So the United States has become a larger supplier, but also France with a significant uh, 
uh, medium uh, combat aircraft uh, deal they made. Uh, Israel's been coming in. So, you know, I don't remember the numbers off tip of my tongue, but it was something like 90% reliance on Russia down to 60% moving in the right direction. So that's one thing. They're, they're voluntarily diversifying uh, supply. Uh, the second thing is they're trying to build up their own domestic base. Trying to, they've had opportunity to do this for decades. They set up state-owned companies to produce advanced uh, weapons. They always fell short and end up having to buy. So you spend billions to produce, and what you produce is not as good as what you can buy for less price uh, externally. Um, but now they've done a lot of work on freeing up defense production for the private sector and for startups. And uh, I think U.S. companies now talk about the kind of partners they can find locally, the ability to actually exchange technology and do co-production, co-development is quite a bit better than it was uh, 15 years ago. So uh, aggressively looking for other partners to diversify supply and then trying to force, uh, trying to jumpstart uh, local manufacturing as well. Sometimes forcibly, uh, India's Ministry of Defense has issued multiple lists of items that they're going to force indigenization, basically saying, you know, today if we're buying this stuff, X percentage has to be made locally, and in the future we'll go to 100%. So, uh, so buying internationally and focusing on domestic industry. And they've, they've issued how many x-fold uh, uh licenses for domestic defense manufacturers right i mean uh yeah dozens. i mean i don't know what the number is off the top of my head but all of india's big conglomerates have announced um defense arms and uh they they've created this active program idex which is focused on defense related startups offering financial incentives and such so i don't know the number it sounds kind yeah. of mind-boggling sometimes that people related to me on on you know big companies that go in and have a lot of heft right away smaller companies that are focusing on research and tech um so the the ecosystem is uh, is quite a bit stronger than it was just a few years ago. Now, you, you mentioned the energy side. And there again, India is moving on a couple of fronts. Uh, I mean, look, you, you know the direction. They're buying a lot more from Russia than they ever were before. But, um, you know, India has a significant, uh, um, a si significant desire, some of which they're meeting, on reducing energy reliance overall by shifting to renewable energy. Um, so you've got uh, about 120 gigawatts of wind and solar that have been put in place in the last 10 years. And uh, that'll help to offset the need to buy energy from wherever it is. Now, of course, uh, a lot of the equipment they use for that is produced in China. So they're still, you know, uh, feeding some ways financially another one of uh, another one that we would both agree is, is a rival there. But renewables have been a big thrust and drive. Uh, and and I would say, you know, paired with that, uh, they're making a big push right now into uh, domestically produced hydrogen as well, trying to use that for some of the applications you use hydrocarbons for as well. Uh, the second big area has been some domestic reforms. You've seen it in oil and gas exploration and development. The licensing regime has been freed quite a bit under the Modi government, uh, freeing up coal production for the private sector. Uh, up until Modi came to office, private companies could only mine coal if they had a specific purpose for it, like if they owned a coal-fired power plant or a steel plant. Now private companies have mined coal and, and become merchant operators and sell it to whoever. So you actually have a coal market for the first time. Uh, like I, I know a lot of folks that want to see environmental uh, impact change. Uh, they're not going to want to hear that India has been liberalizing coal and, and oil and gas, but it has. And, and that, again, is another attempt to try to make sure that they can be uh, self-sufficient as much as possible rather than relying. I think at that time, more concerned about the heavy reliance that they had on the Middle East. And every time we have a conflict and oil prices spike has a big impact on India's budget. So it hasn't been driven, of course, by Russia per se. But uh, at least in terms of domestic greener sources of energy and domestic deregulation of oil, gas and coal, uh, those are the main steps they're trying to do to reduce reliance on any country, including Russia. Today's show is sponsored by Roka. 
We really like newsletters, and we've got another recommendation that you've got to check out. The Current by Roka News. Here's what we like about it. It was founded by people who don't like the negative, partisan, and alarmist style of news. It favors facts over opinions. And it tells you what you need to know for the day so you can hold your own at happy hour. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. Rick, on the, on the weapons piece, I mean, you mentioned, God, you must, must have mentioned half a dozen weapons systems. That I think you said uh, light helicopters, light howitzers, military uh, uh, fighter jets. What is India collecting all of these weapons for? What, what threats does it see in its neighborhood? Well, there, there's two primary threats. Uh, number one is uh, the persistent challenge of terror attacks from Pakistan and always the opportunity where things could escalate as they did a few years ago, where you had uh, um, a tit for tat, where you had uh, air, air power being um, uh, that was challenging each other uh, after a terrorist attack. But, but China's the big one. So, uh, you know, when you talk about these specific systems and platforms, um, you know, light uh, light howitzers uh, and and and, uh, uh, and and helicopters, heavy lift helicopters, the ability to move uh, material and kit up into the mountains in fast pace because there's multiple hotspots across the mountains where things could erupt with China or maybe with Pakistan. So mobility is key. Um, so a lot of this stuff that we're doing, uh, it has it has a real big impact on India's uh, mobility, the ability to look at uh, two borders, both of which have contested areas and potential opportunity for flare ups. And the ability to move precious equipment back and forth as needed, depending on what, which place is getting hotter. A third mission set, which is uh, lower priority, but actually employed more often, is humanitarian assistance disaster relief. Across the Middle East, as we've seen uh, countries have challenges and have to move a lot of people in evacuations in a quick spot, uh, India has actually been one of the leaders in doing that, moving Americans out, Europeans out, as well as their own citizens. And a lot of times in that press release, you'll see uh, American heavy lift aircraft are the ones that are used to be able to do that. So... So smaller mission set, but more regular is on humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. But the bigger items are used a lot more for um, for maritime patrol, border patrol and potential border conflict if things begin to flare up. So on China, I mean, that's that is the place where India and the West or at least India and the U.S. see opportunity for cooperation. Yeah. Uh, you know, India has had uh, going back to 1962 or even a few years before that when the Dalai Lama fled India after the attempted uh, Tibetan rebellion and, and came to India, um, you know, you've had constant conflict and tension. Uh, India for decades tried to paper it over, but things have really started to explode in recent years. Uh, India looks at the threats from China, you know, as multifold. Um, the border, you know, I think a lot of a lot more Americans are becoming aware of. India is the only country that's went into military conflict with China in the last 30 years. Um, uh, luckily, again, no shots were fired, but they're up there brutalizing each other uh, uh, with uh, with clubs and things like that uh, up in the mountains. Um, so you've got contested border areas. Uh, China has been dramatically expanding its own footprint militarily and non-militarily across the Indian Ocean region. Because if we think about an eruption of conflict in, in Taiwan, uh, China wants to make sure they can continue moving energy and vital supplies through the Indian Ocean. And the ability to, to keep that open by muscle in the face of any power, you know, that is a tier one priority to Beijing. Well, India has had uh, unparalleled uh, uh, period here as the uh, dominant power in the Indian Ocean, and they don't want to lose that. Uh, and so seeing uh, China playing a bigger role directly, you see uh, more active uh, PLA Navy patrols in the region, submarines cutting through the region, uh, China developing strategic infrastructure, including ports in the region. You know, all this adds up to the fact that uh, India's own uh, pond, the Indian Ocean, is quickly becoming contested territory. 
And you've got, you know, Tibetan Buddhism. The Dalai Lama is in his late 80s. Uh, he won't be around forever. And he hasn't announced a succession plan yet that would, uh, uh, that would potentially overcome, you know, this, this huge obstacle of Beijing choosing the next Dalai Lama. So uh, India is the home to Tibetan Buddhism. A lot of Indians are thinking about what is that period going to look like of instability in a key religion that, you know, finds home in, in both countries, cyber threats, uh, and then trade. Again, something that most Americans would recognize when we talk about China. Um, the fact that a lot of our commercial relationship is very one-sided. Uh, for India, it's very much the same. So a lot of these uh, trade protections I mentioned at the beginning are driven by this uh, massive trade imbalance with China. And, uh, and a lot of steps, they used to take, they would, they would take global steps that would sometimes hit American firms as well. But of late, India has actually had the comfort in announcing China as the target for specific trade, uh, trade issues. Uh, for instance, they banned more than 200 apps, including TikTok. Uh, they banned imports of certain types of Chinese equipment, like toys and power equipment, things like that. A new foreign investment regime that keeps closer eye on Chinese investments into the country. So the threat they face uh, crosses uh, multiple domains. So what does that tell us about the U.S.? India relationship. I mean, the, we have a, a, a trade relationship that's robust, but not nearly as robust as it could be. There's no free trade agreement, for instance. Uh, we have a sharp disagreement over how to handle the war in Ukraine. Uh, is it just China deep or is it even China deep? I mean, should the U.S. expect India, like you said, for instance, to come to Taiwan's aid in the case of a conflict? Militarily, it's China. Um, yeah. Again, there are smaller mission sets like humanitarian relief, which actually, you know, was was the trigger for the Quad, this grouping of the United States, India, Japan uh, and China. The original dawn of that was the tsunami uh, in late 2004, when the four navies operating in proximity as, as deliverer first relief uh, began talking to each other and saying, you know, this is this is pretty good that we're talking like this. We need to make this more regular. Of course, the Quad was dormant for a while, but. You know, humanitarian assistance um, was the dawn of the Quad, um, and so that's a light mission set. But yeah, China really is kind of the overriding. Um, you know, the, the challenge that we've got, and this came out pretty prominently during the Trump administration when uh, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson came to CSIS and gave his first foreign policy speech, and he was talking about India and the Indo-Pacific. And it was really kind of the dawn of when the United States began using this term Indo-Pacific more regularly. But the question in India's mind, what did the Indo mean? Did it mean we were trying to drag India into the Pacific theater of conflicts that we consider most important? Or was it a growing American recognition that the Indian Ocean was also a contested body of water and heretofore kind of ignored by most Americans? I think at least initially, India's fear about that was correct. Um, that, you know, it really, you didn't see the United States offering um, a greater uh, military support and cooperation in the Indian Ocean you know, we'd still sit with India and mostly talk about the threats in the Pacific theater. But that's evolved over time. Uh, India now has the ability to place uh, liaisons at all of our combatant commands that cover the Indo-Pacific, Central Command, Africa Command, and Indo-PACOM. India has invited American military personnel to sit in their Indian Ocean Information Fusion Center. Uh, we do this massive uh, exercises uh, in the uh, Indian Ocean, uh, Tiger Triumph, which involves all the services simultaneously, which is pretty novel. So... Um, I don't think we're quite there yet, but uh, what India wants to see is a little more balance in U.S. security policy so that we, we recognize the threats aren't all in the Pacific domain. I mean, you know, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think most American security analysts, when they talk about the threats posed in the region uh, by China, you know, it's, it's Taiwan Strait, South China Sea, East China Sea, Pacific Islands. And I think Indian Ocean probably even ranks after Pacific Islands. Uh, to India, Pacific Islands is clearly, or, sorry, <laughs> Indian Ocean is clearly number one. So 
finding ways to cooperate that accommodate both interests. You know, that's what next week's summit and past and future summits are about. We both agree China's the threat, but the theater sometimes is where we have disagreements and we need to we need to find ways to meet each other's needs. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. I, you, you really just do not hear about the Indian Ocean when, when we talk about China, which we talk about all the time. Well, I mean, let's uh, talk about not even the ocean. Let's talk about some of the mer- some of the some of the some of the landlocked countries. Which country today? Uh, and I'll answer this before I let you answer. Uh, but uh, which country today is is most at risk of losing territory every single day to Chinese incursions? I know the answer because I heard you mention it yesterday. Bhutan. Ah, oh, okay. Bhutan. Bhutan. That's what I was yeah, going to say. Bhutan, uh, yeah, they have an undemarcated border, something that the Brits left where they called two different mountain ranges in the same treaty as the dividing line. Uh, dozens of rounds of talks inconclusive. And starting in 2017, uh, the PLA has had a uh, massive program to to run into the places Bhutan controlled, start building infrastructure, basketball courts, all kinds of stuff. So you've got this uh, slow incursion happening all the time, a bigger territorial grab than you've got with Taiwan or South China Sea. Bhutan may cease to exist at some point in the future, uh, but nobody's got a, a moment to spare for poor old Bhutan, uh, except India, which India has come to Bhutan's defense at least once so far. But uh, the takeover is happening. And this is a theater where uh, stuff's happening, things are changing. China is showing its claws more than they are in some other areas, but uh, it's not on most uh, most people's radar screen. Well, in addition to Bhutan, India has positioned itself sort of as a, as a voice of the global South, right? I mean, especially since it became president of the G20 earlier this year. Is, is that something that India can can help the U.S.? Can it serve as a bridge between the global South and the U.S.? Yeah, I, I don't think they'd want ever for somebody to characterize it that way. Um but uh, and I don't think we quite know, you know, India was in charge of this group of 77 for a long time, non-aligned movement, uh, really trying to be the voice of uh, countries that were left out of the Cold War or developing countries for a long time. Got kind of downplayed and forgotten for a little bit, but now uh, trying to trying to once again become the leader of the global south. Um, I don't yet know where this is going to go to. I think a lot of Americans fears they remember the non-aligned movement, G77 fighting the United States at the WTO and places like that, um, very different ideas about what you know, the system of order for global trade and things should look like. Uh, maybe it's going to be that again. That's a lot of Americans' fear. But an alternative could be that uh, when you think about another area where India is concerned about China's growth, which is the, the slow and steady takeover of a lot of international institutions, uh, many of them fall under the United Nations, the International Postal and International Telecom and things like that. These are groups that set standards for the entire world. And the United States and Europe and others have been longtime leaders. Uh, we kind of took our eye off the ball. And the minute we took our eye off and China realized, you know, for their own companies and well-being and security, if they can have a, a driving seat at the table of these organizations that set international standards, it can be really important for exerting Chinese power in the future. Uh, India and others are kind of waking up to that. So, you know, it could be that as they start to, you know, pull countries together, uh, maybe they start to look at uh, bodies like this and uh, and trying to get more countries to find their voice, maybe supporting India candidates more so, maybe having their own candidates come out, but trying to block China from taking over all these institutions that we uh, on most days kind of ignore, but have real power and authority. Um, and so, so, yeah, it could be the dangerous old things. I think it's what you hear from a lot of Americans when they see these meetings coming about. Oh, India's back to its old tricks again. But uh, there could be some utility for it. But hate to call it, you know, the, the bridge to uh, to American interests, or however we want to term it, there. Uh, let's just uh, let's let's give India a little little leeway here and see where it goes to. <laughs> preparing for uh, preparing for your visits <laughs> to the White House. Uh, That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a big stress inside the U.S. India relationship are American concerns over over Indian democracy, right? I mean, 
how do Indian leaders respond to those concerns? Do those, do those resonate? Uh, I'd say these days it's a bit of a tit for tat. Um, uh, we'll bring it up and India will point out some of the challenges that we faced recently and uh, they're not wrong. Uh, but still, we do bring it up pretty consistently. And, and I think under the Biden administration, they try to do it quietly. You probably won't see anything related to that in the public statements and things like that. Um, but privately, uh, talking to a lot of staffers throughout the U.S. government, they expect that it'll be raised pretty pointedly. They don't want to raise it to the point where we'll risk getting progress in all the areas that are important to us. But they do want to make sure, you know, not just today, but as India heads towards a national election in a year, that um, if the party is feeling politically weak or something like that and wants to recharge the batteries, go to things that are useful. Don't go to divisive rhetoric, which they've employed in the past, and try to try to trigger things that way. I mean, overall, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, you know, sometimes when when we talk about some of these threats to uh, to human rights and such in India, uh, Prime Minister Modi gets lumped in with characters that uh, operated, you know, very differently. You have had you know consistent attacks on on press and on NGOs. Um, you know, some 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 real eruptions on issues related to religious tolerance. But at the same time, you know, he has devolved power to state governments pretty robustly, um, including devolving tax power uh, to uh, to state governments. So, you know, to call him like sometimes an autocrat and things like that uh, flies in the face with some of the devolution of power things that he's done, which are quite real and substantial. Uh, actually, today, his party controls only about a third of Indian states, too. So when he when he devolves power to states, it's not like he's just simply giving them to his understudies. He's actually giving more authority to opposition parties. So, so you know, on, on uh, a lot of these social issues that, that come up and get, get raised, um, they're quite real, but uh, not always fitting in the same camp as he sometimes grouped into of these uh, authoritarian leaders and, and a drive in that direction. Um, but it'll get raised. It'll get raised quietly uh, and it'll get raised to the exact point where they think they can make a difference, but not so much where they're going to derail the positive things that are on the agenda. That's my read. Mm. And, and how is Modi perceived by his fellow leaders? I, I don't want, I don't want to over-index on, on how personality shapes foreign policy, but we have elections in India next year. Who's rooting for him? Who's rooting against him? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tricky question. Um, you know, I, I would say that uh, I've been in this business for um, 25 years. Uh, this is the third prime minister that I've had the opportunity to work with pretty closely. Uh, the third Indian government. And, you know, both in terms of as a commercial partner and a security partner, uh, he's the best that we've ever had. So in as much as we think about our relation with other countries, can we get things done uh, in terms of commercial integration with a big growing country and uh, uh, security cooperation versus the big threat? Uh, great partner. And we've been able to do a lot of things. And even, you know, some issues on human rights where uh, the Modi government has had these programs on on expanding access to clean water and energy and things like that. Um, you, you see a real uptick in in people's livelihoods at the base level. Um, but you know, to say like would would other leaders vote for him? Uh, it's a little bit tricky. Um, you know, I, I think that not every country's had the same experience. You know, for instance, if you're talking about uh, countries in India's own neighborhood, uh, the other countries in South Asia. Uh, India is the big brother. And, you know, sometimes big brothers, even when they're trying to be nice to the little brothers and sisters, they can be a little mean. Uh, India has a tough time dealing with their neighbors with nuance, uh, but they also hate it when they see the United States engaging their neighbors uh, kind of independently and without going through uh, through Delhi. So, uh, you know, I'd say uh, China would probably like to see uh, Modi lose. Um, they'd like to see a period of at least instability, if not somebody who's friendlier. Um uh, the Biden administration, um, I think that we've seen Modi as a good partner in some ways, uh, not so much in others. Uh, Putin, I think, would probably be pretty impressed with how Modi has kept the course despite all this international condemnation. 
uh, India's neighbors would be a mixed bag. Some of them uh, enjoy working with him. Other ones feel that he's got a bit of a heavy touch. Um, so yeah, it all, all depends on where yeah. you sit, I guess. Well, Rick, last question. Uh, optimistic on the U.S.-India relationship going forward. I mean, are we going to see more of these state visits or, or, or less? Yeah, uh, I'm optimistic. Um, you know, there's a lot that we could see that would derail things. And I'll touch on that in a second. But, you know, when you look at uh, India just surpassing China as the world's most populous country, when you look at the World Bank and Asian Development Bank talking about India being the fastest growing large economy in the world, and they've already beaten China most years out of the last 10 in terms of uh, annual economic growth. So when you think about the numbers and the meaning behind that, the number of Indian students that come here, the number of Indians that move here and become top executives in our companies, you know, that integration that we see of the two countries is astounding considering how far away they are and things like that. Um, you know, it's real, it's substantial. And I think, you know, if you're looking at the 20 year, 30 year horizon, um, you know, I think a lot more Americans had better start learning a little Hindi when they go to school or learning Tamil or things like that, uh, going and spending a bit of time. I mean, when I'm flying to India and you see Americans on still the overriding majority of them are, are religious uh, hippies going out there to try to go experience something new and novel. You don't have as many like MBA students that are going out there because they know every company in the world that looks at the world as part of the growth plan needs a big India strategy. You know, we're just now, I think, starting to enter that phase, which we did for China about 20 years before. So, you know, ask me if I'm going to bet on it. You know, I certainly would. But there are things that could derail and these could blow up at any one point. Uh, one big one that's just around the corner is uh, the, the election in Bangladesh. You know, as I mentioned before, um, you know, sometimes the South Asian countries, they, they may not enjoy working with India, but India doesn't want the United States uh, meddling in, in their region as well. You know, Bangladesh is heading towards another failed election. Uh, Sheikh Hasina is, I'm sure, going to win by some astounding majority that typically we only see in post-Soviet countries or something like that. Uh, the United States has already announced a sanctions program against Bangladeshi officials that try to uh, uh, push down the opportunity for free and fair elections. Um, India would rather have Sheikh Hasina stay in office in perpetuity. Uh, she's been good for India's interests, good on tamping down uh, some religious extremism in the country. So uh, you've always got moments like this, whether it's Bangladesh election or maybe a Sri Lanka election in the future or, or Maldives. Uh, we approach Myanmar differently. India is more comfortable working with the, uh, the military uh, government. The United States has basically cut off all connectivity and support there. So, uh, you know, you always have these opportunities kind of on the horizon when, you know, uh, the depth of, of U.S. interest in making this work is still thinner than you'd imagine it. And it wouldn't take too much to break through that. We saw it just a decade ago, a decade ago, a, a small series of little commercial problems. We downgraded India's airports, regulators, some other things. And then the arrest of a diplomat up in New York triggered an, ult an absolute freefall in U.S.-India relations for about six months. So, uh, you know, on good days and on flat surface, uh, we can do incredible things. But it's not yet so resistant to a bunch of small things suddenly adding up and, and causing a bit of a fall through. So, we just uh, hopefully summits like this also allow the two leaders to try to make sure that we can, you know, be cognizant of those things and try to avoid uh, dangerous swerves before we hit them. Well, just a, a few more days until Modi and his entourage arrive in D.C. Your office is just a, a couple blocks from the White House. So, Rick, my, my parting words, add 20, 30 minutes to your commute, please. <laughs> I'll do I'll use the CSI's helicopter. That's the way I get around it. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Ethan. This was a blast, man. You asked all the right questions and a few I hadn't heard before. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in. 
As you heard Rick say, India has been part of the non-aligned movement for decades, meaning it's mostly refused to pick sides during periods of great power conflict like the Cold War. And that was easy for India, because frankly, for all of its great qualities, for its arsenal of hundreds of nuclear weapons, it was never a great power. But now it sort of is, or if it isn't, it soon will be. And here's the thing about great powers. They always pick sides. Or they create their own side and make other countries pick. That's the power that makes them so great. So even if India hasn't been aligned before, it will, in my opinion, almost certainly be aligned soon. And that means Mr. Modi's flight schedule already among the busiest of any world leader will probably get a whole heck of a lot busier. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating on Spotify, a review on Apple Podcasts. I mean, do it all. Why not? And of course, tell a friend about us. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday. Monday.